Hi Dave. Hi Sarah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, thank you. How did you drive over? Oh fine, thank you. Yeah, all the misters are lifted from this morning, thank God. Oh, it hasn't been too misty here actually. It was all weekend, but... Well, yesterday I went through to Liverpool and drove through the valley and it was the only clear spot. Oh really? So coming up from Sheffield, covered in fog, clear as a bell here. Hit Whaley Bridge and foggy again all the way to Liverpool. So the best part of the day, this bit. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. No, it's fine. <laughs> no, I think it's a great little project you're doing. Yeah, it's a nice way of meeting new people as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, this is such a lovely spot. Got it to ourselves, I think, huh? Yeah. Most people are going back down there. Why did you choose this as our location? I had a good think about it, Sarah, actually, and there's plenty I could have chosen, really. Kinder Downfall is always a bit of an iconic place for me, but it's also quite a trek across these days. And even a place like Four Jack's Cabins, which is not too far from this spot, it's a nice spot just into Plateau and a lot of history there. But here, I think looking across, we can see why. You've got fantastic vistas of uh, Rushapedge, Lord Seat, Amtor, and more to point, the, the Valley of Edale, with Grindslow Knoll on his right shoulder. And it's just a beautiful spot and peaceful. No noise at all. Only the odd uh, grouse telling us to go back in the distance, as they do. But now it's a beautiful spot, it's peaceful, as we found this spot to, to uh, sit and rest. It's fantastic. Even on a day like this, which is a bit grey, it's still fantastic. Yeah, it's like a very... There's a, there's a silence. It's <laughs> yeah, and you look across the field, they're all different colours of greens and browns and beiges. Now autumn's here, all the bracken's dying down. That gives it a different look again to the landscape. You see the landscape better once the bracken's uh, dying down. It's always hides the landscape, I think. That is true, because you often think in yeah. all the, you know, in the autumn and winter, it, it's maybe looking a bit bleak, but actually it opens up even more and the views change yeah. so much. You can see the tracks, the animal tracks, again, uh, on all the moors you'll see tracks you couldn't see during the summer suddenly appear again yeah it's no ticks <laughs> either that's the other nuisance with bracken which is where it is and it's part of the landscape nowadays so what was it that first brought you to kinder scout and how was that first experience my i mean i come from a working class background in in sheffield pittsmore burn grieve area my father was a steelworks engineer and he'd be about 36 when he learnt to drive and got his first car. And I'd never been out into Derbyshire at all, not even been through it, I don't think, because all our ollies were on East Coast, uh, Skegness and places like that. And he brought us to Castleton, first trip out in his car. And we had to walk up when it's passed, and I was just blown away by the landscape, absolutely blown away. I couldn't believe it. And I thought, this is what I want to come out and see more of. So I used to go to the library a lot. When I was a kid, he used to get some. I mean, she had a bedroom with two younger brothers, so he didn't have many bits and bobs you could keep yourself. Certainly not many books in our house. So he used to go to the library and look through books and to get a bit of peace and quiet, I suppose. And I saw looking through outdoor books what they got there, and I heard this place called Leedale. And I found it on the, a map in the library. And I noticed I could get a train here from Sheffield. So I must have been about 13 years old at this time, but about 12 years old that summer, we went to Castleton, so a year after, about 13 years old. I came out on train, I got off at Edel, walked up to the old Moorland Centre before it was modern out to what it is now, and I was looking at this stretcher on the wall in the information centre, and this voice behind me said, where are you going, son? I looked round, this tall, skinny bloke looking at me. I says, I'm just going for a walk from me. He says, where are you going? I said, I have no idea. Do you want to come with me? And I found out later he was a ranger. I found out later in life that it was George Garlick, who was the head warden at that time for the Peak District National Park in this area, and also uh, the team leader, Edel Mountain Rescue, the first team leader, as it was. So we walked up Grindsbrook, where we can look down into now. I remember that well. And we got to the top of Grindsbrook. I can't remember whether it was knackered or not. So I would <laughs> imagine I would have been. And then we walked straight across the plateau to Kinder Downfall for all the old gruffs. And I've no idea what I had on my feet. I ain't got a clue. It wouldn't have been proper boots, I know that much. And he took me under his wing. He probably fed with water me, I don't know. I don't know what I had with me, I can't remember. And we walked back across to, across Brown Knoll and down Chapel Gate, back into Edale, and that was it. I was smitten forever. 
with Kinder Scout. That was it. I had a blessing that day. And a few weeks later, I got the train again to do exactly the same, and I met some guys on it. These, it was a Saturday. These guys were the Odin Caving Club of Sheffield. And I got talking to them. They, they said they'd go into Pindale to stay there for the weekend. They'd go there regular, digging, to see if they can find any old mine shafts and that. Um, being a bit naive back then, I thought, all right. And they said, come with us and stay with us. So I phoned my friend's mum up on the streets, the only one with a phone on our street, and said, can you tell my parents I'm not coming home tonight? <laughs> I met some guys on the train and I'm sleeping out with them. I'll be back tomorrow. You can imagine what my parents must have thought, but I, I, I reckon I just thought I'll, I'll take the rollicking in the morning. I want to stay out with these caving guys. They look like heroes to me. <laughs> and we stayed in the old hut in, in Pindale Quarry, which is still there now, but it's covered in ivy. They covered the doorway up with an old curtain and the window up with, with rocks and bits of wood. And they made a fire in the middle and we went up Pindale all day. Walked down the railway track, which we shouldn't have done, I know, down to the Cheshire Cheese at night. And they were a bit older than me, by the way. They sat me in the corner and bought me a shandy. And, and the rest resisted, and we're still friends to this day. And I, I became a member of Odin Caving Club. I made some fantastic friends and some fantastic experiences. And also started climbing when a couple of climbers joined the caving club. Uh, so that brought a new uh, hobby, <laughs> as well as caving. And so more money needed, so I left school at 15 to get a job. And so I could buy all the shiny gear I needed. And that was my first uh, inkling into the outdoors. My father buying his first car, Prince of Castleton. And that set the seed, really. And what was it that made you feel smitten with that experience? I don't, I think it's something I still feel now. I've, I feel peace and calm. You can mull things through in your, your mind. You just feel safe as well, even though you're in a hostile environment sometimes. With a, I've been on Kinder Plateau in, in White House in time and, and the visibility, it was fogged down to probably 10 metres and gone straight across Plateau to take downfall. It scared myself silly halfway across, thinking it's so white and so quiet and you can't see anything around you. You turn around and you can see it's whiteness. And a slight panic flutters in, you think, no, just keep on your bearings to the downfall and Kinder Gates, you'll be all right. I did, and I was, and I got there, and I came back on the edge path just not to tr push me luck too far. <laughs> but yeah, is that you can experience a lot of things up here. Nature, the danger when it's really rough weather, if you want to come up here and test your uh, skills, etc. You can find a bit of solace. I've come up here in sad times just to get some peace and quiet for myself. You know, 27 years ago, a really sad time in my life, and where did I come? Get the scout. <laughs> I went up Grimesbrook, came back down Grimeslow, sat up there in the fog again. <laughs> <laughs> Mulled things over, I thought, right, time to go home now. I'm happy now, I, can, I know which direction I'm going. So yeah, it's uh, helped me a lot in my life in various forms. I often think that Kinder Scout must hear so many different stories mm. from people. <laughs> I bet, yeah. <laughs> Through the stomping of boots. <laughs> yeah, and uh, blas blasphemy. And everything, it's experienced everything in its time, I suppose. But I love the history as well. I bought a book uh, in Edale, uh, post office when it was there some years back, called The Book of Edale, written by the Edale Historical Society, I think. A four-size book, fantastic book. Um, I bought a friend one while it was that good. I went back in and bought another one for a friend. And uh, it's full of old pictures of the history of the families around here. The, the, one family comes to mind, the Tim family, T-Y-M. And I think one of the Tims was one of the four Jacks that built for Jack's cabin back then, or certainly one of them that um, refurbished it once it got into a bit of rack and ruin. So since those times, what role has this place played in your life? Um, other than, I wouldn't call it exercise, it's never exercise coming out here. You come out here for fun, exercise is a secondary thing you, you get from it. Certainly... Other than coming out here socially with with the team and that, it's um, that has a massive impact on us because a lot of our jobs can be in this area. And if they are on Kinder, we know it's going to be quite a serious extrication or whatever it may be, depending on weather and depending on whatever the injury is or the medical condition. If it's a stroke or heart attack, we we know we've got to be moving fast, you know. And that's where probably helicopters might come into play sometimes. I think also the, 
I've made friends out here as well. Mm. You know, I've got to know people, acquaintances or friends. Um, one of the guys used used to be in the team, still lives in Edale, top of the valley up at uh, Upper Booth. He's a good friend. Um, his friends in Billy's who have, have probably left the Billy's now, who used to work there, who I know of. Um, what about when you were working? So when you, yeah. through your working life, did you still find time to come here and visit? Oh yeah, yeah. During even during working life, it, it was probably more times, more often, I got time to come out here. It, it's now I mean, in the team, you tend not to come out here socially as much because you, you're working out here in, in some way. But I do get out here now and again uh, with the old friend and say, "I'll be at Kinder for a while. Have a go. Which way do you want to go?" And it's usually always from Edale, and it's usually up Grimesbrook or, or this route we've done today, Ringing Roger, which was zigzag track past Fred Edmund's plantation. <laughs> I always like coming up here with different people because I always take a different route. Because <laughs> I, I always go around the edge of Ringing Roger there, whereas you brought us right up that path, and I very rarely... I don't think I've come up there for months or years. <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's, it's the path we usually take in the team, and I, I think it's just like going on autopilot. It's like when I'm go, going somewhere different, and all of a sudden I find myself going on the, the route I take every day, and somebody says, Dave, where are you going? Oh yes, we're not going there today. We? I'm on <laughs> autopilot. It's just head down autopilot, and I suppose it's the path of least resistance when you're carrying heavy packs on your back and half a stretcher or whatever. And it's the path we'd take to go down with casualty because it's you've got that scramble on the other side of the top track, which is not very good for a stretcher and that. Mm, absolutely. So, why did you initially get involved with Edel Mountain Rescue? Um, I was fall running to keep up fitness up a little bit more for my jiu-jitsu um, hobby, which I was doing for nearly 20 years. And um, I did this Nine Edges Challenge. Um, I thought, do you know what? Um, to keep me and get me going out, because we can all be idle and say, do you know, I don't fancy going out tonight. But if you've got a goal at the end of it to go for, you're more likely to get off your backside and go and do it. So... I took up this nine years challenge. I started getting uh, raising money for it, and eventually got up to six hundred and fifty pounds in the kit. I thought you've got to do it now. Mm. <laughs> and two weeks before it, I got a bit of a knee injury started. So physiotherapist advised me not to do it. But I said I've got to do it because I've got six hundred and fifty quid riding on it for this Edale Mountain Rescue people who were, I had no idea who they were. I knew what Mountain Rescue was, but I didn't know who they were. Uh, so I did it. I did it about four and a half hours, which not too bad. I was happy with that. I hobbled the last bits, I think, last couple mm. of miles. Uh, and I didn't know there was a prize at the end of it for the person who raised most money, and it was me. So the prize was you could go out with one of the mountain rescue guys who was an outdoor instructor, uh, James Facker. And James was, was a member of the team. He's, he's now um, an outdoor instructor in Fort William and Chamonix. Um, highly respected outdoor instructor. And he it, it, I, I, I opted to go some navigation training, so I could have got climbing, navigation, or and something else, I can't remember what it was. I thought, well, I've climbed a lot in my life, but navigation, can always brush that up, I'll go out and do some navigating. And it's not far from the spot we're talking to James, coming up with zigzags, and he said, have you ever thought you joined Mountain Rescue Team? I said, no, I'm too old for that, I was 54 then. He said, you're not, you're the type of people we want at that age, who's got less more time on the hands and less less responsibilities at home perhaps your kids have left home etc etc all right so i thought about it and i applied and uh, we came on the hill for an assessment day and went back to base and <laughs> i was nothing more surprised than me and he said we'd like to join team day as an aspirin it takes about 18 months to get through so there was a couple of us uh, joined that day and there was two left out of the, the five that joined in that day left at the end of it me and paul and we got through in a year. Uh, that was it. And uh, the reason for joining, I, I suppose most people say, I want to give something back to the outdoors or the hobby I've done all my life. There's a bit of truth in that, but there's always a bit of selfish truth as well. <laughs> I wanted to meet new friends, uh, meet like-minded people who still like the outdoors because all my old caving and climbing friends had, had married and started doing this strange hobby called fishing. <laughs> which I, I could never get my head around. <laughs> and uh, they were trying to get me out to go fishing, and I always shook my head and, no, 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 I don't even want to come and watch you fish. I don't want to do it, no. So th there was a bit of that in it as well, and, yeah, great set of people. There's always somebody who wants to do something, whether it's climbing, kayaking, running, 
whatever it may be, and outdoors there'll be somebody who is up for something. Even though I'm a bit too old for most of it now, uh, there's always something to do there. And what was the training and the assessment like? So you're expect to to become an aspirant member. You're expected to have a a decent sound of ill skills, uh, and 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 be comfortable in, in ills on steep ground, etc. Have basic navigation skills. Have a first aid certificate, which I had from a jiu-jitsu. And I think one that nobody talks about much is get be able to get on with people. You know, there's nothing worse than trying to work with somebody who you don't get on with, you don't get the best out of each other. So that's really important. I've found in the team that an ability to get on with each other is a, a good trait to have. <laughs> so, yeah, and they, you don't have to be a climber. They don't bother about climbers because as long as you come to on steep ground, um, we don't climb. We, we lower each person off the hill top or a cliff top, sorry. We're stretching or to a straight to a casualty. So there's no climbing involved. It's just that being comfortable at heights, I suppose. We'll teach you navigation. But you're expected to go out together as a group and learn these skills, what we've given you, and practice these skills. So we don't give everything on a plate, but we will learn you and take you out to polish the skills up. And we put you through the mountain uh, rescue cas- casualty care course. And that's a certificate that lasts three years. We renew it every two years, just in case you fail one year. You're still a year in ticket. So that's a massive life skill, really, because we're, we're trained up to um, the ability to give morphine uh, intramuscularly. So we, we give opiate drugs. We don't carry morphine, uh, we, we, but we're trained in, in that. So that's just... It's more than an ambulance technician will do. It's like a paramedic skill. So the last skills that gives you. So I feel comfortable walking around now if I see something happening, to walk over and say, can I help? Where before I might have been a bit more hesitant, thinking, what the hell can I do? But that's a massive life skill it gives you. So there's rewards for all the hard work you put into the team, but you've got to put it in to get it out. You know, you know what I mean? You've got to put the, the work in to get it out. And was there a very long gap between the idea kind of being put to you about volunteering with Mountain Rescue and actually getting on with it? <laughs> no, no. Uh, that day, James, so the, it would have been probably September's the nine edges, so 2009 and 2010 March, I joined the team as an aspirant. So I must have made that decision sometime not long after I went out with James I, I reckon it was about November I went out with James walking so I made that decision before Christmas put my application in and uh, probably heard somewhere just after Christmas that I've been accepted to come out and uh, see if I'm up to the scratch really I suppose and now that you're a few years later in mm. has it been as you expected it to be if you had any prior expectations about it yeah I, I mean when I was 18 uh, in the caving club, we, we we was asked to join the cave rescue, Dobson Cave Rescue Organisation. We our club became a, a subsidiary, so I'd had a little bit of experience of what rescuing like in caves. But that is quite different <laughs> to being in the outdoors. It's a lot harder actually. So I had no inkling. Um, the actual skills you need, are, or, what, or what you gain, I should say, are phenomenal really. <sighs> Loads of skills, really, interpersonal skills with people and that, because you're working in a team of nearly 50 people, with volunteers, not being paid. So you've got to know how to get the best out of a volunteer, you know, and, and uh, so your, your interpersonal skills come into it. Um, as I said earlier, casualty care skills are just, I would never have dreamt I could learn all that, you know, in that short period of time, uh, as, as long uh, alongside a, a learning the navigation skills up to mountain rescue level, the crag skills for rescuing somebody off a crag face with a stretcher, how to set a belay up, how to organise the ropes, etc, etc. The communication skills, how to use the radio correctly and stuff like that. The driving, eventually you go through an advanced driving course if you become a blue light driver, and then you have a blue light driving course. So it's courses after courses. Just three weeks back I had... um, Along with two other my colleagues, I had a search manager's course at base, which was a, a three-day solid course, from half past eight in the morning to half past five every day. 
you know, in, they're intense. You know, people haven't got a lot of time to spread them out, and especially during COVID. So everything's during COVID intensified. The, the, the courses are as short as possible, so as, as, as least uh, contact with each other as possible. So it's the skills you learn a phenomenal, really. They are. And what responsibilities do you have now as team leader? So team leader is in charge of the operational side at um, team. So under me, I've got the equipment officer who looks after what the label says, all the equipment. He's got a, a vehicle officer that helps him and he looks after the vehicles being serviced and anything wrong with them. He makes sure they, they, they schedule for the every every six months to have vehicle service to make sure they are up to date and we have an MOT every six months. So they we go well and above what the expectation is. So we know that vehicle's safe driving it on blue lights at high speed. I have a train officer. Uh, and he, again, all these labels say what they do. He looks after training, uh, which is a, a very intense job. Again, uh, he's training the aspirants coming through, uh, getting them ready for their final assessment weekend, and then continual training for teams. So we train as a team twice a month on a Tuesday evening. Uh, the equipment session twice a month, uh, one on a Tuesday evening when we're not doing training, and one on a Sunday morning at the end of the month. So you can, st- and then we have fundraising between that. Uh, and then the other one, the other officer is the medical officer, and uh, again, he says what he does on the can. And Steve looks after everything. He's responsible for all the drugs we carry with the home office, etc. So he's got a lot of responsibility in that sphere. So anything operational, it, it falls down to me and the people who work for me as officers. Uh, the chairman looks after fundraising, secretary and treasurer, and that's his job. So all the operational stuff is, is basically mine. I I never envisaged the amount of work what we do and, and can do as volunteers. And I know I'm retired now, but there was a time when I was doing this, when I was working, running a jiu-jitsu club, being a team member and looking after two ill parents I don't know how I did it looking back but we do as humans don't we just we just do it we get on with it so the the guy I mean I, I, if we're out late on the night or I'm called at two o'clock in the morning to go searching for a, a vulnerable person it, it may be in Sheffield it may be on in the suburbs of Sheffield Chatfield or it might be out here somewhere I ain't got to go to work next day that's all, most of the team I've got to go to work next day massive percentage I've or they've been on a shift and they've gone on come off shift and come straight out on the search you know so there's a lot to be said for the commitment. The commitment, we, I, I nailed that into uh, the aspirants when they came, come for the open day and they first come to see us. And we have this day to try and instill into them by talking to other team members and then having a one-to-one meeting with the team leader and the train officer. Just how much commitment there is. And my first words to them is, by the end of the day, you were sick and tired of me saying commitment. That word, because I can't say it enough. I just cannot say it enough. And sometimes we'll get the odd one who will say, actually, I haven't got the time, because it's the time commitment. I haven't mentioned coming out and calling out here, have I? That's, that's what we are here for, really, because all this stuff I've been gabbling on about is what we do to prepare ourselves for call-outs. So we never know where a call-out's going, obviously. We never know where it's going to be. We never know how long it's going to take. We can have it as a guess. We don't know if that call out we go to at half past 11 on a Sunday morning is going to be the only one we do that day. I can remember one Sunday where we got six on, on the bounce before we finished one. We got another one coming, uh, another one. And at eight, eight o'clock that night, we finished with, with jobs and started clearing up. And that was during COVID. So we had all the cleaning down the equipment and sanitising to do back at base. So it must have been about... Midnight, some of us got home from half eleven, leaving the house in the morning, thinking we'd just be out for a... See you in a couple of hours, darling, we'd be back home for lunch. <laughs> didn't. So, I mean, and that can be a strain on families, obviously, and relationships. Because uh, it's all right for us, it's, it's, it's our hobby, in a, in a sense. It is. It's, this is my hobby. But it's not my wife's hobby. Mm. <laughs> and even though she's got friends and uh, a life of her own, You've got to be mindful that you're probably leaving them for several hours and then you're going training a couple of years after and you're going on a course a couple of years after that and then you're going down to base help to help the equipment a couple of days after that and you've got to think about what you're doing for your partner, you know, as well. So it's a difficult balancing act with some team members, I would say. 
very understanding partners. Usually, that's what you've got to have. And, and the commitment again, that word I just cannot say enough. It's unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah, because it sounds like there's so much more involved in it. In the background. Than, yeah. Oh, and then we fundraise. Yeah. So we go out rackling tins. And it's not, uh, we have a support, I must, I must mention the supporters side of the team, because they're fantastic. And these are people who can't commit to being operational, uh, or don't want to be commit, but they want to help in some way. So we have a supporters group, and um, they'll, they'll come and help clean base for us, they'll come and help the equipment, they'll come and help fundraise, which they're really important in fundraising for us, because if we get a, we sort of average and racking teams once and we get a call out, and it lasts all day. We've got we lost all that chance of raising some funds, and and talking to public as well. That's important. We're trying to get the word across about ill safety, etc. And the supporters can stay there and run the show. So they they have a, a uniform and they have a supporters badge, which is similar to the mountain rescue badge, but it's their supporters on it. Uh, so they're a big part of the team. You know, they keep us running and they they, they help out tremendously in a lot of aspects, really. What is it that makes you want to spend your retirement doing this, or at least part of your retirement? I think for me, and I think probably for most people who was in it for the long haul, it, it, it is being part of the community, really. It, it is. It, it, I, I'm hesitant to say giving something back to what I do. It, it is, but it's also being part of the community out here. We try and support the community in, in, in their fell races and that. We try and be there as a bit of a safety cover. Uh, but if we get a job, we have to go, and they, they understand that. Uh, but we're there for the Aversys Fell Race and the um, Bradwell shows and the carnivals, when we can do carnivals again. We try and put a vehicle in procession just to show people we are here for you as a community. We're not just here for visitors who are coming to peaks and, and have accidents, you know. And uh, when the snow comes, that comes more apparent because these villages will get stuck and they might need food or medicines getting up to the remote farmhouse um, uh, you know there might be an old lady who still lives on her own up in up a track that nobody else can get to we, we did it a few years back when we had storms with a family at um, Tideswell Moor and they were stuck they just got there for a weekend and the other friends were coming staying there but they got all the food so they each one of them were bringing something and the ones with the food couldn't get to the place so we we trekked across Tideswell Moor with skis and stuff. And uh, I remember in my rucksack, among other things, I had uh, a buckle of Jack Daniels, which was a very precious bit of cargo, <laughs> and a, a pack of um, nappies packed, strapped to me in my rucksack because it was too big to go in the rucksack. And we, had, we had all sorts of biscuits, food, and uh, the most welcoming bit of item we got through to them was the Jack Daniels. The, the guys bounced on it. Pounced on it when I when I opened my rucksack and presented Jack Daniels to him. So there's, there's all sorts like that. He's going and seeing drives who are stuck in snow and getting them out and taking them to a safe place where police uh, designate uh, a school hall or whatever it might be or a hotel. So yeah, it's been it's a massive part of the community. We 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 feel we are part of this whole Peak District community. All the teams feel the same really. Uh, it is giving me something back. I get a lot out of it. I get a lot of pleasure, a lot of satisfaction after we've done particularly our job, you know, when somebody's really seriously hurt, we've, we've got them into the hands of the hospital and the ambulance. And there's also a sad aspect to when we find deceased people uh, and we have to go and fetch them off the hill. Somebody's um, ended their life, perhaps, in a remote spot, which we get quite a bit. And it's our job because nobody else has got the facilities to go and get anybody off um, the top of Winhill, so in the woods. And it's, it comes down to us. There's a lot of sadness to it, but at least we're bringing that person back into the comfort of the family. And uh, that's all we can do, really. How do you deal with the mm. sadder side of things? Or um, For me, I cope with it all right, because um, I, 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 I just look at it like that. We are we're bringing somebody back down into the arms of the loved ones, so to speak. If we wasn't here, how would they get them down? You know, so it's it's given us a lot of a pleasure to know that we've been of some use at the end of that person's life, and and the family knows that we look after them and care for them. You know, the way we bring them down, we bring them down with respect and care, uh, like. If that person was still alive, they'd have the same treatment, you know. 
Uh, and we always send an email around to the team and say, look, and certainly for the newer ones in the team, the ones who have just come in as an aspirant and not probably been exposed to anything like that before, if you want to talk, it's a big thing in team, what I promote, we all do, you know, talk, and I make sure I, I ring pertinent people up who I think might be struggling and saying, do you want to go for a talk, have a coffee? And most of the time they're all right, but we, we are mindful that, you know, people might dwell on it and we prompt them to talk. That's the main thing. And what are the sorts of challenges that you think people mainly encounter on Kinder Scout in particular, and in terms of like walkers and people out on the ground, but also the challenges for yourself as a team to then deal with them? I think challenges for Kinder Scout is a, is a, is a quick changing weather conditions. Um, it's an eyeball and plateau. It's 2,008 odd feet so it's a mountain in the, in the classification it's a mountain very featureless nothing there there's the odd Christmas tree that's been planted by a passing bird that's dropped a seed <laughs> as we've seen quite weird to see a, a lone fir tree and somebody's probably put a, a Christmas bauble on it just for <laughs> a bit of fun there's hairs <laughs> and they move there's nothing to um, really take a there's no features so you, you totally rely on navigation unless you keep to edge track and even on edge tracks that's where people slip and trip um, even if they're wearing correct footwear it can happen but a lot of people do go we see them going up from Edel when we're fundraising and we we, we smile wryly and we try and be friendly with them and just set, we strike a conversation and ask them where, they, where, where you're planning on going today and if they say up there and we look down and she's got some white stilettos and we try and advise them that probably a lowland field walk up to Upper Booth would be good. They might get an ice cream at the end of it. Uh, we're just trying to encourage people, really. Um, that, that's it. It's, it's, it's wrong clothing, wrong footwear, getting caught out in bad weather, getting caught out with the darkness, not having a torch with them, not having, if they've got a torch, not having spare batteries, relying far too much on a mobile phone for a torch and a navigation aid and then they find the all of a sudden they've no battery left so even just taking a, a battery bank up with you might help but please don't rely on, on that for a torch as well and try and learn to use the map and compass as I always say once you've learned it's quite fun mm. and it gets you into places you probably didn't go before and, and it, it learns your landscape more uh, there's plenty of people running these courses out there now, loads of people. Go in any outdoor shop um, in our area, in Aversage, and there's on notice board there, there's loads of people offering uh, courses in moorland, uh, navigation, etc. And it can, it can be fun, but, yeah, it's the featurelessness that uh, catches people out. They go up there and go, we'll go off the track into these gruffs, and they go a bit further, a bit more adventure, and all of a sudden they turn around and everything looks the same, and they don't know where they are. All they've got to do really is put the compass, if they've got one to south and they will lick the edge path, that's what you've got to do in the panic, which can happen because, like I said earlier in the talk, when I was going across through the downfall and that mist and I suddenly panic halfway across, I, I, I can appreciate how people can panic when, when they're not used to this. Now, I was used to it, you know. Mm. We had a slight flutter of panic and I think, yeah, that's how people can um, come unstuck, really. I still get it now, mm. like, even though I'm... I'm learning navigation and I've been out in those conditions. Yeah. It does feel quite vulnerable, but I think then you, it, once you've got through that vulnerable bit, then it can t kind of take you into a, oh, this is beautiful and yes, unique yeah. and <laughs> exciting. And yeah, you get, you, get, you get your confidence back. And I think learning to navigate with a, a map and compass gives you that confidence. You can have your, um, your phone as a backup, but it's just one of the tools in the toolbox like everything else, you know, and... I always say let people know where you intend going. Uh, let them know what time you might be back. This is the old thing we used to do in old days. It's not a bad thing to do. Just let a family member know that you're going to so-and-so, you intend to route to so-and-so, and you expect to back so-and-so. And if you're not back, then they can ring the police and ask for mountain rescue. And then we'll kick in. And that's our job. That's what we do. We don't mind. You know, If you need us, you need us. And that's what we're here for. You know, we, we we don't get paid, so we must love it, <laughs> in a weird way. Do you quite like that it's a volunteer service? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd hate it to be... The thing is, people said to us, when we're fundraising especially, 
why don't the government support you? <laughs> and straight away in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, no, because as soon as the government get hold of us, we're money, health and safety will kick in, and they want us to do it this way, that way, and we do it to industry standard anyway, but they won't like it, and they'll want to put their nose in. So we, we manage quite well with the public supporting us, and that's how we get our funds. Without the public money, we wouldn't exist, and we exist here for the public. So that's how it works. Mm. And we, 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 and like-minded people like climbers and walkers and mountain bikers, etc. Paragliders, not yet paragliders. They all support us. They'll they'll do things for us, and uh, we we all enjoy those hobbies as well. So it's like-minded people doing like-minded stuff for for each other. And another thing, I'd, I'd I'd much rather a family come out here with the kids and enjoy the fresh air. If they have a slip and accident, that's fine, we can sort that out. Rather than sitting in the house or sitting in a pub garden and the kids having no life, get them away from that television, get them out here, and let them, let them get scratched and mm. bloody and whatever and get muddier than that. That's what kids should do. That's where they get the immune system from. <laughs> and what a lovely feeling. I mean, not you know, not that you ever want to use the, the, the mountain rescue, but it is an amazing feeling to think, you know, if, if yeah. I really, if something does happen, then there there is something for me to turn to. Will you? Yeah, yeah. It's seven teams at peak this week, so there's plenty of us. We we help each other. You know, if if one team's struggling in one particular day, we'll get another team to help us. We work a lot in uh, close conjunction with Buxton. Uh, we we border each other's patch, so Mamtor area and Edale, we'll work together, especially midweek when people are working and perhaps we can muster six or eight people and they can do the same. That's enough, 15, 16 people, a couple of vehicles, we can sort most things out. Uh, extended searches, like the kinder search, we go search at night on here or in daytime, it's usually at night but um, could be in daytime. We'll instigate the kinder plan. If we don't know where they are, We've got a, an app called Phone Find, and what we do, we send a, a, a text to your phone. In that text, there's an hyperlink. There's instructions what to do. Your data service must be turned on. Your location service must be turned on your phone. It tells you all that. And all you've got to do is press the link, and hopefully, if you've got a signal, it'll come back to our software platform. It'll tell us exactly where you are. And if we've got a phone signal, we can tell, sometimes, we can talk you off the hill. We can say, actually, you know, if you keep going down where you are now, yes, you will get to Edale. So we'll talk them off sometimes. But at times, if they're an injury or they well into plateau and it's cold and it's been a lot of time, there's Edale, Buxton, Kinder and Glossop. will take a quarter each of the plateau in their area. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll send search parties onto their... Uh, on, the well-known search plans, what we do, we cover certain areas, we'll send dogs in certain areas because we know they can work better in that area than people on the ground. And it doesn't usually take long before we find somewhere. And with a phone-find facility, like I said, we can, if we can pinpoint you and talk to you on a phone, what one comes to mind from last year where a guy, uh, unbelievably, come from Edale with his mountain bike, sorry, sorry, Jacob's Ladder on his mountain bike, gone across a plateau on his mountain bike, that's the amazing thing, through the gruffs. He didn't ride it, he pushed it. <laughs> Sounds like hard work. As you well know, he can't ride. <laughs> and we actually pimped, he didn't want to ride. He, he was actually between William Clough and Kinder Downfall, near the track. We spoke to him to keep going, and he hit the track. Oh, I can see bright lights now. And so he was looking across to Manchester and Oldham. So we knew exactly where he was. So we said to Kinder, we told this guy to keep walking on the track towards William Clough and they came up from William Clough and met him and took him back down. So that's how phone find can work if you've got a signal and we can talk to you. Sometimes we can talk to you and they still can't make head or tail where the hell they are. You know, they, they, we know, but they can't make them realise which way to go. So we so just it, get up there and do it. <laughs> is it a good, like, strong relationship between the teams, oh, yeah, the local yeah. teams? We have a banter between us. Because we are the A team, Edale are the A team, Books are the B team. <laughs> You're going to get in trouble. And the Books we're talking to now, they're the A team, we're the B team. <laughs> You've got to have banter. And we, we all work at the same guidelines. We, we, we all do the same CAS care course, et cetera, et cetera. Um, might do certain things slightly different, but we all do the same thing. The Peak District Mountain Rescue Organisation or the umbrella body who don't govern us, but help the teams, they'll get funding for the teams and um, stuff like that through 
central government uh, if we if we need it they sometimes get um, like like through covid we we managed to get the masks and the gloves and uh, various other things which we've just been going through like wildfire you know we just can't keep a pace we can't get it from manufacturers so they've um, organized a lot of the PPE stuff for the teams to, to, to use because that was a problem when we first started with COVID when we first started with COVID how the hell are we going to keep up with all these masks and gloves because we're going through rare nuts and that that job with six jobs in a day we soon went through a stock of stuff what we thought we'd have for a couple of weeks it's gone in a, in a day so um, they help with things like that, basically, and they'll they'll um, they'll go and lobby down at Westminster and things like that, and talk to the powers that be on our behalf and try and get what we might need. Sometimes, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But we're not funded at all by like government. We get VAT back. That's something we do get back. So we are grateful for that, and that, that's something that's come through in recent years. So if we are buying a, a new control van. Like the Mercedes 4 before Sprinter, we've got, which by the time it's done with kitting out, can be probably 80 grand's worth of vehicle there. Getting the VAT back on that is quite substantial, so that's good. But that's all we get, and that's all right because the public look after us. Is funding pretty good at the moment? Are you in a it, it's, it's better than we thought it would be. We've been quite surprised how much money's still coming in. And now and again, we like most teams, we, we might get a legacy from a, a, a it's sad, but it's a bereavement. And somebody's suddenly left us a substantial amount of money, which suddenly boosts the coffers back up and lets us breathe a li- little bit easier. But um, the public are fantastic. We find that the, the, the older generation, it's strange we've got a Bakewell fundraising, and the older generation, we tend to go to Bakewell for a walk around the river, are fantastic. They'll put their hands deep into their pockets all the time, the little old lady will come, and you'll be amazed. And think, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. That's the generation what they've been brought up in, I suppose. So, how do you, when do you decide to call in a helicopter? Is it up to you, and where do they come from? Yeah, uh, so the several different types of helicopters. The um, air ambulance, which is probably the first boat to call. I suppose it's, it, it depends on the injuries. Um, if it's heart attack, stroke type, asthma type, anaphylactic shock, we will first ask for an air ambulance is there an air ambulance available if it's a location that's quite remote and times of a essence we'll ask for an helicopter if it's uh, on kinder or a really remote location like kinder or bleak lower or anywhere like that we need to get probably a winch down to get this person out it'd be the um, coast guard the sar h um, sikorsky s92 which they come from Umberside predominantly, or the backup one is Carnarvon in North Wales. So for our area it's Umberside, but we do get Carnarvon if Umberside's off. They might be on a job in North Sea or something like that. So uh, We also have a land ambulance running at the same time because any of those helicopters could be stood down or have a mechanical problem or you know be diverted to a more serious injury. You know, If we've got somebody a broken leg in Grimesbrook, uh, we, we would try and bring them down ourselves, usually, usually we do, we very rarely ask for an helicopter, but if we've got a climber who's a bit broken up on Frogger Edge, the helicopter sometimes is dispatched by the ambulance service without us asking for it, and they're, they're on it before we are, so as they're travelling, we, we get the call as well. And sometimes the air ambulance will lift off without taking the patient, because it's not necessary. They may get a call that's more important, we've got a land ambulance, and uh, Johnny with the broken leg on Frogger Edge, we can carry him down the track on the stretcher to land ambulance and he can be taken off to hospital and they'll release that air ambulance for any more serious emergencies. So it's not very often we get the SAR-H Coast Guard helicopter, but that's predominantly if it's, if it's bad weather, they can come out with the air ambulance, probably won't. They can fly in more foul weather. They can winch where the air ambulance can't. The air ambulance is trying to get a winch facility on um, sorted. I think they've got it sorted, but it's not in operation yet. So they will have a kind of winch facility eventually. But it's sometimes not down to us. It's, it's called on our behalf without us asking. But if we want one, we go to the police or our duty controller and request uh, air ambulance or sorry, it's the Coast Guard. And it's all depending on, on the incident and the injuries. 
It's somebody who's got a bad head injury and has been unconscious and not responsive and fully. It might be reluctant to take that casualty because if they start having some kind of fit in the air ambulance, it's not a very good thing up in there. Somebody's throwing around it back, so they might go by road for that reason alone. So it's the time critical people will use an air ambulance for. You've got to take into consideration in the past where the big, as it was a Sea King, but now the Saw H, big red and white helicopter can land because that's got to land at Shycliffe, Ellie's Rome in Sheffield. So it's got to be transported to a land ambulance to be taken to Northern General. So sometimes it's just as fast to leave them in a land ambulance and take them. Sometimes the helicopter will bring them off the top and drop them in the playing field at Edale and transfer them to a land ambulance again for that reason, to three it up. So yeah, it could be any reason really, but usually it's time critical depending on, on the injury. We'll re- request an air ambulance. And are you in com- are you in communication with? Not we are not in direct communication because we we have to go through the police for that or the ambulance service, or our controller will do that on our behalf. Once they're up in the air, we've got radio communications with them. Yeah, yeah, we use a specific radio channel for the uh, air ambulance and the SRH, so they can talk to us down on the ground and we can vice vice versa. It's really interesting to hear about it because I. I was under the impression that it was Mountain Rescue who we were seeing up in the helicopters. No. <laughs> this is what I used to think no. until I did my Hill and Morland training. Yeah. And I really, I couldn't believe, because I used to always point at the helicopters and go, Mountain, it's Mountain Rescue, it's either Mountain Rescue. <laughs> no. no. It's Co- Coast Guard or... <laughs> no, we're not advanced that far yet, but I don't think we could afford that. <laughs> could you fly a helicopter? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the other thing what the Sikorsky can do, and again, very rarely we, we do it in our area, it's it's more the extreme Welsh areas and certainly Scotland, Cairngorms, etc. They'll lift a, a party of mountain rescue people up onto the plateau, up onto the hill, either to the cast site or nearer to the cast site. So that saves them a lot of time and effort um, getting up. Like, like us, if we were airlifted from Kinder onto the plateau or to the downfall, it'd be fantastic, you know, but we don't. <laughs> very, very, very rarely, very rarely. Have you had formal training for navigation? How mm. did you start to learn? Um, books. <laughs> I mean, you can learn about I mean, a long time before YouTube for me, but there's, there's lots of good stuff on YouTube and that if you don't particularly want to go and have a formal uh, training session with somebody. Uh, some good books out there which um, y- you can get. Uh, again, like I say, YouTube. And just go out and play, have a practice. It's like we were saying earlier about uh, photography. Um, just go and play and try it and see what your results are. Do it on a good day and say a fairy. You, can do, you don't have to come out to a gnarly area like Kinder Scout. You can do it in Lowlands and just just look at features and, and try and look at a map and, and look at the feature on the ground and, and orientate your map to the north and stand north. So when you're looking around, you should see in front of you on that, whatever is on that map, looking north, you should see that feature. Try and find a feature. Suddenly you think, ah, things are fitting in there. So see the landscape as it is, and the contours and that. So you know you, know, you can see the steep when the contour lines are, are close. It's a steep bit, so it's quite obvious to everybody that who does navigation. But some people just looking at a map don't probably realise why are the lines close together. It's all brownie looking. You know, it's very steep. <laughs> Be careful. And then you'll get crag little crag uh, things on them steep bits. Think ah, oh, there's cliffs there. Be even more careful. But you'll learn all those skills and. Um, everything will fit together. <laughs> yeah, and I think it can be really overwhelming sometimes yeah. to begin with. You know, you have these, you have a compass and you have the map map in front of you and it can feel very, I don't know, you sometimes feel like you're a bit under pressure with it or something, mm, yeah. but actually it can be really fascinating. Yeah, you can. have it. Some people just don't want to grasp it at all, so they'll, they'll struggle forever and ever, but most people like it. And if you're going out of your family, I think you, you owe it to your family to be safe and... Uh, Go and learn. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> uh, get it a book, fun. go out there and have a look at the map and have a look at the ground and think, well, what's that mean? And refer to your book or refer to your YouTube video and do it bit by bit. And it won't take you long. Yeah. A couple of trips out with someone who runs a course, you'll, you'll soon get it. Soon get it. And that'll give you the basic skills to move on to more in-depth skills. Yeah. 
uh, aspect of slope and stuff like that. I think, well, aspect of slope, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> you'll learn, you'll learn. But that's the more advanced stuff. It does open up a whole new world, I think. Mm. I think once you start to learn, and if you do enjoy it and you have a curiosity about it, mm. it does open, and especially up on Kinder. I mean, there's so much to be explored just here alone. I think if you, if you like coming to outdoors, you'll like map reading. You'll like it. Because you, you, the other thing I should like about maps is, and still do, is I can sit at home, have a cup of coffee and a biscuit, and look at a map, and I can be in Edel Valley, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and I think, well, I've never seen that before. Next time I go, I'm going to have a look at what, what I've seen on map and think, what the hell's that? Or oh, I've seen something in there and I think, I, I, I have a look at map and go, ah, it's that, right, okay. So, yeah, it'll open up an whole new world, hopefully. Mm. Well, um, Thank you for sitting out here in the freezing cold <laughs> on a bit of a slope. It's <laughs> <laughs> not too bad. At least we've got a good view, haven't we? It's not, it's not foggy like it has been for the last three days. I hope you don't feel like you pulled the short straw by getting the December <laughs> slot. <laughs> no, he did give me an option to cancel. I thought, now January, February, March, it might be even colder. <laughs> I kept checking the weather and um, yesterday I was thinking, oh, it looks a bit foggy, a bit cold. And then I woke up this morning and sort of... Is <laughs> it clear here this morning? <laughs> it was pretty clear, Oh, it's yeah. clagged in at my end. Mm. Big Moor's clagged. Then I couldn't walk and do it, Doug. And you still decided to come? <laughs> well, I, I knew I, if, if you hadn't phoned and say it's misty, it's probably not misty because going to Liverpool yesterday, I thought it was the best part of the journey, the Peak District bit, this bit, so it's probably clear as a bell again. So if, I, if I ring Sarah and go, oh, it's a bit foggy, she think, he's a wimp, he's in Mountain <laughs> Rescue. And I was thinking, well, I'm just waiting for you, you're Mountain Rescue, I'll leave you to decide. <laughs> no, and, and the other thing, Sarah, there's always a cafe in Eden, I could have sat in. That is very true, <laughs> that is a fair point. But we've, we've brought our cafe up here with we our have. flasks. And... Oh, we've not had a biscuit yet, we'll have a biscuit once we've finished this interview. Yeah. Thank you for them. And we're nearly there, and I really <laughs> appreciate your time and for offering an insight no behind the scenes of Edel Mountain Rescue, which is just just fascinating. You're welcome to come to our base and have a, have a look round any time. We can arrange that for you. I'd absolutely love yeah, to. Yeah, we'll show you around it and give you more insight into how things... Things will be a bit more clear. Yeah. Then. It's a bit like learn to map read. You think, ah, oh, right, I know what he's on about now. It's, it's honestly been such a pleasure to meet you and hear your stories. And just finally, as we're looking out to, for you, not long before sunset, probably, mm. um, not that we can see any sunshine at all. No, not today, <laughs> no. Can you please share what it is that makes you wild about Kinder Scout? It's the isolation of the place, uh, the wilderness feeling you get of it, the beauty of it, the changing seasons, the history of it. I mean, let's not forget the access, um, Kinder Trespass, who not mentioned that at all, but it's all that history and, and legacy it's got, not just with the Petrus, but the all of Britain, everybody knows about the kinder trespass, and it's all those things enveloped the wildlife, the colours of the fields, the sky. I could go on forever, <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's the, the people as well, certainly, still a lot of history in Edale from way, way back. Some of the old families still live there, it's got a lot of history to it. I think a lot of people respect, even the visitors respect Edale. It's different to Castleton, a place like that. It's a different place, totally different. No, I just love it. Ah, oh, perfect. All right. Ah, oh, wonderful.